it's the Conf Lab. It means an intimate or private discussion or conversation. Here we are again, uh, episode 003, just want to intro a good friend of mine, Dane Weston. Yes, he's an ex-NRL player, uh, had a dream when he was six to go play footy and uh, chased his dream and he played NRL for uh, uh, A-grade NRL for 10 years, but before that all the subdivisions and stuff. He had a very successful career and I'm just really excited because there's a lot of stuff that Dane's done in his life and and we can all look at the incredible life he has and you know what, if there's anyone who can smell what the rock's cooking, it's Dane Weston. <laughs> he <laughs> He's big and chunky and powerful and tattooed and very intimidating but he's got the softest heart you'll ever meet. And um, I'm really looking forward to uh, letting him unpackage his life for you guys to, to hear. So we're going to jump straight into the, uh, the journey but see, all that Dane has done, the football – the other things that he's done in his life, that's what Dane's done. But the thing that we want to get to here is who is Dane? Who's Dane before his name of Weston? Who is the created person and and what is he going to do about his life? So, mate, so stoked to have you here. You want to just uh, jump on and say a big hello or whatever you want to do? Yeah, mate, thank you. Um, very grateful to have the opportunity to come and uh, chat with you today and um, – you know, known you for a number of years now and from the beginning, mate, always had an interest in me and uh, both you and Amanda and it's something that I'm really grateful for and to share such a, a special bond and, um, you know, just the faith you have in me as a man is something that I admire and uh, I'm just happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. So for our guests that don't know what NRL is, let's just give them a briefie on on what the game is. Like if you're, if you're non-Australian um, and you've never seen it played, and, like, I'm feeling for you today, actually, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, I did wear black today, but I should be wearing maroon. <laughs> and so I am feeling for you today. So just give our listeners a, few, a little briefie about NRL and, and the state of origin because this, is, this podcast will be released in a few weeks, but two days ago, New South Wales died. I'll let you have that. Yeah, mate. Um, unfortunately, New South Wales not good the other night. Um, Heavy favourites too, so yeah, uh, very disappointing. But um, yeah, the NRL, mate, obviously the pinnacle of rugby league. Um, you know, and like you said earlier, as a young kid, I I aspired to to play there one day. Um, it was a dream of mine, and um, you know, it was a it was a journey to get there. Uh, don't get me wrong, but for most people, um, that's that is the pinnacle. You know, but not a lot of people get to play representative footy like Origin or for Australia, but to actually make and play one game at NRL, you know, is a big thing. Um, and to have played as many games as I did is, you know, something I've, you know, hold really close to my heart. But, um, yeah, it was exciting. So just for, say, someone who's listening to this that play an American, they're just playing rugby league over there now, but they have been for probably the last 10 years or so. But what is, what is the game of NRL? What is it? It was rugby league, so um, there's different different leagues over here. We've got rugby league, rugby union, AFL, which is Australian Football League, and for a lot of people without an understanding, they think it's all the same, but um, very high contact sport. Um, 
it's been, you know, a lot more skill, a lot more faster these days than what it was back in the day. But, um, yeah, very physical, demanding game, um, not only on the field but off it as well. Um, really takes over your whole life um, as the demand of training, eating, like it all, you know, together is is hard. A lot of the off-field stuff is harder than actually playing. Yeah. You know, I used to say that if you could just get me to game day, I'd, I'd still be doing it now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just the pre-season training, you start in, you know, late October, November and, um, you know, you go until March and yeah. without games and it's plenty of head noise in that time. And um, But, again, the, the dreams once you start playing and week in, week out and, yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a game where two teams – run at each other flat out and see which one still stands with the football and tries to get across the try line. That's my very short, <laughs> very, very uneducated view of rugby league. I love the game. It's awesome. Um, yeah, so proud to be able to have you here today and talk about that stuff, that sort of stuff. And But that's something that you've done and you had a dream for doing it when you were six, you know, and, uh, and then you finally left home and at 15 and went and chased that dream, got signed early on in life and and got into your career. What I want to uh, talk about right now is, but who is Dane? It's a good question, mate. Um, <clears throat> I, from a young age, like one thing I always put my finger on is I was just a young kid that just wanted to be loved, you know, and um, I always come back to that because when people ask who I am, it's a harder question than you might think. Um, and I think back to that six-year-old that had such a detailed dream. It wasn't just I want to play NRL. It was I want to play NRL, I want to win a comp and do a lap of honour with my two boys. And for a six-year-old to have a mindset like that, so detailed, I later on in my life, I, I accomplished that. I did it in the UK, I won a comp and did a lap of honour and I had two boys, you know. So 23 years later from that dream, I got to accomplish that. Um, but along the way, there was something missing. There was always something missing in my life. And, um, and when I look back at it all, it was love. Like I, and I found that with God. Like, and, it, and it took me, you know, almost 32 years of my life to, to get there. And the whole time throughout my life, I was always, it was, you know, a love because of a performance-based love. It was yeah. Dane left home at 15 to chase a dream. Yeah. And he's doing so well and everyone wanted to follow me because of it because eventually my name was in lights and I hated it. Like I literally despised people that wanted to be in my life because of that reason. And um, it literally come to a point where I had to not have a relationship with my dad's parents because of it. Yeah. Um, and just recently reconnected with them after years of, you know, not speaking and, um, and again, through, through my faith and forgiveness is a huge part of that. And, um, but for me, I always just wanted to be known as, you know, that, you know, lovable guy that, you know, just do anything for anyone and, um, you know, love people so much. And, and that's my nature. Like, I just want to help. And that's I've always been, and that's, if someone asks me, like, and a lot of people do, they're like, if they've got issues, they come and talk to me about it. And I always feel like I must have that, you know, uh, presence with people that 
if they have an issue, they come to me and that's nice. Yeah, so it's not just the attractive rock-looking features you have. <laughs> <laughs> it's you're giving off an energy of love. That's what you're saying. So yeah. what, you, what, what I'm picking up from what you were saying was that is you had a dream to play NRL, but then it started to feed some approval there and it pushed you even harder for, to perform. But then what your reaction was to people who were jumping on the back of your fame or – you, you, you couldn't stand that. You, you, you distanced yourself from that. And is that basically what you're saying? Yes, mate. Yeah. So I, I would – I'd separate myself from that. I could like identify it really early in my life when people would come in for that reason. And as I grew – and I had to grow up fast. Like I'm – to paint a picture, I'm 15 living in a house with no mother or father – um, we had a Filipino nanny that used to come and cook, clean. Good food. Yeah. <laughs> um, cook, clean and, um, you know, just do everything but then leave, you yeah. know. So we didn't have any guidance there. I had 18, 19-year-olds living with me, um, get myself to school, you know, do all that myself. So, you know, it was detrimental to a little bit of my upbringing but as far as, you know, my work ethic to want to get where I wanted to get, I mean, it was instilled in me from a six-year-old because yeah. I knew that – I knew the steps and I think that's the biggest thing is like I knew what I needed to do to get there and not just the grades but the willingness to, to work hard. But along that journey, more people are coming in and I, I'm a guy that I could have two friends. You know, I don't need a lot of people in my life to fill me up. Um, so I was never looking for more people in my life. But when they'd come in, I'd soon recognise, I'm very discerning, like to a point where I'm like – you know, I, I can be a good judge of people and, and the quality of that person and I just started pushing back and I just wouldn't allow them into my heart. I yeah. just wouldn't, you know. Yeah, cool. So um, how did you emotionally mature enough to be able to handle stuff like that or did you? You know, that dream that you got when you were six seems like it drove you to get to where you wanted to go and I, quite often the end of that can cause some devastation. I remember listening and I spoke about this in, in, in our last episode with Ben about listening to Benji Marshall just recently on national television tell the world that he – everyone knew him as a 343-gamer, you know, golden boot, incredible football player, but he didn't know who he was. He's, he, he wasn't affirmed of his identity. So his dream took him all the way to the end of there and then he stood there and went, who am I? So how does that correlate with you? Has that six-year-old boy had a dream? And then how did you emotionally grow properly or did you to the point where the we get to a point in your story where it get, gets almost devastating? Mm. Short answer is probably I didn't. Um, I just was so focused on what I wanted to do. Yeah, I want to stop you there yeah. and dig into you didn't. Yeah. So emotionally gro emotional growth. So – and I'll just give you the example. Um, you can have the most amazing skill and have the most amazing talent, but if you don't have the same emotional agility and the same emotional growth, then you, your talent can't keep you where your emotions can't hold. You know, they can't – it won't take any further than that. So if you can explain to everyone what, what it was like to be an A-grade football player but have the emotions of what you thought your age was. Yeah, well <laughs> – from a young age, I had things happen in my life, a lot of traumatic experience that made me, you know, into the position I was in life. But um, I had a lot of things – I grew up in a family where a lot of things were swept under the carpet. So I couldn't actually 
like regulate my emotions a lot of the time because I didn't understand them. Yeah. I, I never knew what they were. Like I could, and even to a grown adult, I couldn't. Um, you know, obviously I, I understand myself a lot better now, but back then it was, yeah, I, I just, I couldn't. And hard to explain, mate, in a sense, but um, rugby league itself is something where you're expected just to, to get on with it and, and move, where I'm like, and there was so much disappointment in that, but I didn't know how to handle it. And I didn't know my only way to, to get through anything was try and perform better, try and do it, but not understanding that everything else that, mentally and emotionally that I was struggling with, I wasn't paying it attention. I wasn't going there with that. Like, and that's, which we'll find out later in my life, almost led for me not to be here anymore, yeah. you know. So um, it's a huge one and, and, again, not fast-forwarding too far, but with my own kids now, it's it's seeing me in them as a, as a young kids and going – this is what I reckon I must have been like because there's times where they can't articulate how they're feeling. Yeah. Or they can but they don't want to. Yeah. And that's probably another one, mate. Like at times I probably didn't understand but there's a lot of times where I just didn't want to speak. Yeah. You know, so. Um, yeah, I, underst- I understand that. I was actually just having a conversation with um, my daughter Mia the other day about our our grandson, Donnie, and right now he's like uh, 13 months old. And he's all of a sudden starting to express emotions. And I'm like, this wall is just a baby. And he's expressing emotions. And then I noticed when I, when I was a dad, when I was a young dad, um, what I would do to my children when they would express emotions that I didn't agree with. And it's not teaching them how to be agile with their emotions. It's not teaching them how to monitor them. We can't just let them go. We've got to guide them. So from what you know, explaining what I'm hearing from you is that it's the same thing. It's like don't be angry or don't cry or in, in a man's world like that you grew up in is is just work harder, push yourself more and their emotions will deal with themselves, ignore them, sweep them on the carpet. And you're yeah. saying you had an upbringing yeah. very similar to that. Yeah. 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 Well, because that actually leads me to the next question I was going to ask, um, you know, you seem, from my perspective, like you've had some of the greatest uh, mentors and coaches and team members and leaders in your life in like that we would put up as heroes in Australian sport, like Craig Bellamy, like Matty Elliott, um, like name a few more. I'm yeah. not saying name drop. I'm just no, – I've, no. I've, I've got a point here. I yeah, definitely, mate. I um, Graham Murray, the late Graham Murray, he was at the Cowboys um, when I was there and, and I was thinking about this throughout the week and he was such a respected uh, man and one showed so much, um, you know, um, I suppose faith in me as a, as a person uh, first and foremost yeah. and I always remember Muzz for that, you know, like he treated me um, almost like a father figure yeah. and um, – and I really admired it. He used to, you know, pump me up, you know, to a point where he could see the good value in me and knew that my good qualities would come out on the field because of that's how he focused. And and Craig's the same. Like Craig Bellamy, that's how he works. He wants to get the best person revealed first and then we'll work on the skill later. But um, I was quite fortunate. Ricky Stewart, he was the first one to give me my first crack at, at Cronulla and um, coached by Ivan Cleary at the Panthers as oh, well. Wow. And so, yeah, I, mate, other than coaches, players as well, there's been so much influence in my life that I've had, you know, like A-class, yeah. um, you know, people. Like Cam Smith me. and yeah. Billy Slater and JT yeah. and those guys. 
Yeah. So tell me and tell all of us, how does, like we've got this incredible uh, community and environment of phenomenal leaders that have so much success around them. How does that happen and still struggle emotionally to the point where it just about takes your life? Mm. Yeah, it's a hard one again, mate. Um, when you're in it, it's hard to explain when you're not in it. Um, I know when you're a kid and because I come from that where it's like, I was never talented. Don't get me wrong. I was, my skill set wasn't as good as some of these stars, obviously, and that reflects in my career. But also I knew I had to work and not drop one thing to get where I need to be. And still when I got there, it was just a humble career. Like it wasn't something to, you know, people are writing – massive stories on they know people know me knew that I had to work so hard to, to achieve what I did and, and I'm really proud of that yeah um, but there was always something going on and I suppose the adversity through up and down playing first grade going down letting opinions you know um, affect you um, getting dropped um, you believing you should be somewhere and then you're not and then trying to understand why you're not playing first grade um, when you should be and you've just had a, a great game but you're missing out. The emotional roller coaster that it is, you could put anyone in front of me, it doesn't change your feeling at that time. And, and I think thinking of coaches, sometimes they're the enemy as a player because all you're thinking of is in your head, you're like, oh, stuff him, you know, he's not picking me this week or that. So you lose the concept of who that coach is. And you forget that, oh, he's a, he's a great coach, he's very this, he's that, you know, the other. But um, I think the same with players. When you're in it, it's not until you reflect back that you go, wow, I appreciated that and I had that at, at my feet. But I think too because of my mentality that I treated others just as people. So I, I didn't have them on a pedestal to go, oh, Cameron Smith's in my team or, you know, Billy Slater's, you know, I'm playing with him this weekend. I got excited by it, but it wasn't them people in my life were just like mates. You know, they were just everyday people. Yeah. But from the outside looking in, they put them up so high that it's almost like you touch them and everything turns to gold and it's not the case. Yeah. So I suppose, you know, looking at it, it was never going to make me a better person by having these people. And that's the thing we need to concentrate on. It's like we can have whoever we want, but if we can't understand ourselves and get to a point, well, then, you know, we could have anyone there. It's not going to change unless we can, you know, seek that ourselves. Yeah, that's amazing, Dane, because that's really what I, what I know about you and that's what I wanted to press on and really try and dig out in this is the fact that, unless you chase your identity, unless you chase the real person of who you really are, it doesn't matter who's in your world. It doesn't matter all. You can have all the mentors in the mm. world. You can sit you can sit under rabbis. You can sit under the most incredible leaders unless you're emotionally confirmed by yourself and you're okay with where you're emotionally at and where, and you know your identity well and you love yourself first. It doesn't matter the jack, mm. what, what's going on. So... Um, I just want to ask another question in, in around that. That dream that you had when you were a six-year-old, if it wasn't for football, it was a dream for greatness. Mm. That's, that's what I, you've basically discovered. So what would that look like if it wasn't for football? Well, when I was in year 10, I almost, almost quit footy um, and went and started an apprenticeship as a builder. Um, and that was almost a path I nearly went down and it wasn't for my dad that 
could see that I wanted this so much that he was willing to take me somewhere else to, you know, get my career back on track and my dream because he could see that if I threw it in that we may never see the full potential of my dream that I wanted. And I'm really grateful and thankful that Dad did that. At times I – Dad and I's relationship struggled at times because I felt very forced to do things. I felt very like, you know, almost like I was a first grader at, at 13 and I'm like – you know, I didn't feel pressure like this. Todd Carney, I grew up with Todd in Goulburn and his old man um, was our coach growing up. He was really hard on Todd. Um, you know, he's not with us anymore, but he was a great mentor for us young kids. We had a great team, but he was always hard on him and I always used to see that and feel for Todd. Um, but then as we go later in life, Todd owes so much to his old man because his old man could see something. It mightn't have come across the way he wanted but he was doing what he believed was the right thing to help his son. And, and dad did the same. I, I kind of have resented him at times because of it, but um, I get the, the opportunity to do it again. So I, I didn't go down that path. But to answer your question without going rambling too much, it's um, – I, I don't know. I, I still honestly believe that I'd be doing something similar now. Yeah. I just would have – I would have just skipped the career as a professional athlete yeah. um, because – if my true identity is being created in God, he's had this plan from the beginning. It's just that, you know, I'm realising it now in life and I look back in my life and I understand what got me to where I am now. Um, but so I reckon I'd be doing the same thing, mate, because I feel like it's been in me from the beginning. It's just been revealed now. Yeah, so that's the greatness, what yeah. you're doing now. Gee, that's awesome. Um, and I loved listening to you talk about your dad and Todd Carney's dad. You're still really good mates with Todd Carney, yeah. aren't you? Um, he's had an interesting career. Todd has as well. Mm. But do you interpret like back then? You would, you said it was hardness. Um, but would you like? I don't want to put words in your mouth here. But from my perspective, there's love there. Mm. So so often we shun the the hardness and think it's not love, but that's the tough love that sometimes we do need. Yeah. It just it would be nice to have a, a balance of both. Mm. So do you see that now? As your dad was loving you, and your Todd and Todd's. Yeah, 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 for sure, mate. And I think too, and one thing I've learned again um, is, and it's come out in my the way I father as well. Um, there's things that, generational that happens, and and I feel for dad in a sense because dad's only fathering me at that age. The only way he knew from his own father, grandparents, whoever's influenced dad's life, that's how he knew. So it's not entirely dad's fault the way he was and maybe he couldn't, you know, emotionally connect to me the way I may, may have wanted to. And that came out in other ways. But to answer your question, yes, like he, you know, dad does love me. He's always loved me. He just couldn't, you know, show it the way I wanted to receive it. Yeah, you, know? you just didn't hear, I love your yeah. son. Or, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really interesting that, look, I want to press on something here in yourself. Um, so probably put my coach's head on here for a second if you don't mind. Um, and I know that you're so happy to be vulnerable here, but have you ever sat in your space? And you know, one of the big statements that we use here in the Conflab, and that that'll be through nearly every episode, is is the treasure you most seek is in the darkest part of the cave you most fear to go. It takes courage to go down there. It takes courage to look in and see what you're missing. And I, I'll just give a little testament. I'll be a little bit autobiographical here. Is my dad let me down? My dad was an incredible leader, an incredible minister, changed people's lives throughout the world. Things that he set up are just incredible. But I, I missed out on a dad because he's, he was mission-focused first. And so that's, that's a, sn a little short synopsis. 
But here's the thing. It wasn't until I could say without any any excuse and any justification on his purpose on the planet that he actually let me down until I could I could go into that dark part of the cave and go, you know what, you let me down, full stop. It wasn't until that point that I found a shift with me and my father's relationship and he's been – and that, that was after his death. So have you been able to do that with your dad? I have, mate. I, um, I've done it with a lot of people in my life but especially – mum and dad um with that there's a lot of stuff you know through my healing um in the last few years where I've actually things were revealed to me you know um that I'd spiritually as well that I could see clearer that why things were the way they were and it was important for me to go forward like you said by sharing that with dad yeah. sharing that with mum the same for different reasons but the same thing and it hurt it hurt dad. It hurt, you know, myself too actually going through it. But it was the only way forward, you know, without holding on to that. Because if we didn't, we'd be still living with it. And you see it, mate. You see it today where people are like, they're affected by things, but they just can't forgive or they hold on to resentment, you know, and, and bitterness. It's just, yeah. It just kills them, yeah. you know. So for me, it was important for my growth as well. And then it's never too late. And that's what my wife always says to me is, you know, you've got, you know, you complain about what things happened, you know, in your um, upbringing with your own dad and you've always said you don't want that to wait till, you know, the kids are 30 for you to have that change. So I suppose that's another driving point that I is always in my mind that I didn't want that as a kid so I don't want my own kids to feel that way. So it's more important for me to to understand when I'm falling down that path potentially of being the way that I didn't like is to you know, correct myself and actually remind myself what truly is important. Yeah, that's so good, mate. That's so good. I'm, I'm proud of you for the fact that you've actually been able to do that face-to-face with your mm. parents because that's the thing is a lot of people will avoid that. It's a real part of emotional growth um, a lot of, and it's a real part of um, you unpinning your identity is, is removing those things from it. So I'm just going to give you some license now to, to go. I want you to tell you a story. Um, what happened in England or how you got there, you know, a bit of a journey there through to England and, and then what nearly happened. And just for our listeners, if you don't mind, uh, it's up to you at what level you share, um, but whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, and then we'll jump into the back of that. Yeah, mate. It's um, So we go back to my career. Um, like I said, I, I was at Cronulla and um, obviously single at the time. I got an opportunity to go to the Cowboys and um, – at a young age and quite a lot of money and it was, you know, it was a good time in my life. Like I was so excited and for once I wasn't struggling to get a contract and I think Ricky Stewart gave me an opportunity. It was almost like a trial to say, well, you've got a pre-season to prove yourself. 12 months before that, Stuart Rape was the coach and he said, we don't have a contract for you. So I literally was in limbo between August, September, October and then Ricky Stewart was signed at the club. He took over the club and through my manager said, we'll give him a crack. And again, through hard work, Ricky's seen that in me and he's like, I'm going to give you an opportunity. And round five, he gave it to me and um, always have a special place for him for doing that because if he didn't give me the opportunity, who who was, you know, and maybe I, I mightn't have lasted. So um, I then kind of, I went up to the Cowboys and after 12 months, having a, a good time there, I, I met my um, wife, at the time um, through a mutual friend and 
things went pretty quick and uh, she was pregnant early and, um, you know, our first son, Jet, was born. And um, at the time, I was not really enjoying my time. The Cowboys had a bit of a falling out there and uh, moved back to the Gold Coast uh, where my ex-wife's from and um, lived there for 12 months and um, and then prolonged my career with the Panthers. So it's a funny story. I actually signed with the Titans. I was training part-time with them and then before my contract even started, I got a release from there to go to Penrith because an opportunity financially come up. It was more stability, more years. And so I took the family down there and um, was there for a number of years. And when I was about 24, so maybe, you know, 12 months into um, my deal at Penrith, I was I was really enjoying myself. I was, you know, starting most weeks with Penrith and, you know, um, 2012 that was. And, um I was just miserable outside rugby league, you know, like I was married at the time, um, had two beautiful kids and um, I just couldn't understand why, you know, when I left training that I'd just be miserable. Like I literally, um, and my wife at the time would say, you know, what's wrong with you? And I couldn't tell you and I'd say nothing. And I, and a lot of the time I couldn't, I didn't believe there was something wrong. I just thought that I just wasn't in a good mood that day or, or what and this went on and on and and then eventually, you know, it got to a point where my you know, ex-wife was, you know, saying that you need to go and see someone and I did and I went and seen a doctor and um, went and seen a few specialists and long story short, they said, you know, you've, you're depressed, you know, you, you're riddled with anxiety and depression and, and I just, being young with everything at my feet, I didn't believe it. Like I could understand that there's a place for it but I couldn't actually – sit there and generally say I'm depressed and there's other people out there worse off than me how can I sit there and go I'm depressed but I play week in week out NRL I earn a lot of money I've got a house I've got kids I've got a wife like what's there to be depressed about I felt embarrassed to actually go and tell someone I'm depressed because my understanding was people would go what are you on about like and to most people, that would have been their attitude. And I just swept it and I got on with it. I continually to play good footy. and Yeah, um, just, just so I could just jump in there. So you swept that under the carpet. Yeah, yeah. So that was that same sort of reaction as when you were growing up. Mm. Like we'll put our emotions under the carpet. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so um, and then again, opportunity come up. Um, I, I got signed at the Raiders behind closed doors and – Obviously, growing up in Goulburn, it was only 45 minutes down the road and it was the first time I was going to earn the most money I've ever earned. And I didn't want to go to Canberra, but financially it was the best thing for our family. And that ended up turning on its head. I, I signed the contract in November. I told Ivan Cleary that I was going to leave to go to Canberra. And back in them days, if you signed with another club so early, you weren't going to be playing first grade for the following year. And um, that matched up. I, I spent, you know, the first three months in reserve grade and Ivan wasn't going to play me because he knew I was leaving, which I didn't agree with, but I just had to get on with it. And Raiders end up pulling out of the gig. And that was another story for another day. But it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was hard on me mentally. You know, that again, when I was just like, here I am being told all these things to me face by the Raiders paraded around the, the um, venue and the club and, when they shouldn't have, you know, they weren't allowed to, they shouldn't have been doing that. And and I made it quite clear that that's what they did and and it got pulled. So I was kind of sitting there in Penrith, playing reserve grade, like just lost all this money that I would have earned in the next few years and 
And then another opportunity come, as it did, an opportunity come to go to Melbourne and um, one of the best things that ever yeah. happened to me. And financially, not great. You know, like I was living back at home with mum and she was living at Melbourne in the time and I was earning not enough to stand on her own two feet and that's what it was. But I knew that if I persisted, things would open up and again, the, the work ethic come you know, to fruition and um, I got a contract with them long term and um, – Things start opening up, started playing first grade there and that club in itself is just incredible. Like what I've learnt off the field and what I've got instilled in me now from the lessons there is, you know, you can't buy it, you know, and I'm very grateful for that. And um, I left the club end of 2015 to go to the UK. Um, I went over there, obviously my wife and um, two boys, Jet and Blaze, and um, – Again, opportunity. It was an opportunity to play in a different competition, but also to travel with the family in in Europe, and um, loved it. Like loved me time there. It was cut short, obviously, but when I got there, I when you go to UK, I was in a little club, and at the time we're in the second division, so um, a bit like the Premier League in soccer. There's promotion, relegation, yeah, right. and um, and our our side was stacked. You know, like we had a pretty much an NRL team playing in Championship over there, and we're all getting paid stupid amount of money to do what we did and um, loved it. Had a really good time, but more of my good times was playing footy and partying. Yeah. So when I look back as a father and a husband, when I say I loved England, I loved it for myself because that's the ego that drove my time throughout my career. I focused on Dane Weston, the rugby league player, yeah. not Dane Weston, the father, the husband. And unfortunately um, – so the the dream, yeah, yeah, and I and I thought that I deserved that, you know, like I honestly, mate, like humbling myself at the after I've retired and gone through what I, I do go through, I um I can see it to go that my ego drove. I thought I deserved because I earned the money, I accomplished what my dream, that everyone had to see it and watch me do it and applaud me for it, and then when I'm done, then you'll get my attention, and that's I didn't say it, but my actions said that. You know, like, and and so, it, so during that time, also, were you still getting treatment for your mental illness? Not yet. So, okay. uh, so that was back at Penrith. You were diagnosed in two thousand twelve. Yeah. So two thousand twelve, two thousand sixteen. I'm in the UK. Wow. So yeah, four years uh, later. Yeah. Um. And so, the same feeling. So when I was at Penrith, two thousand twelve, arguably be my best year. You know, like I'm playing first grade week in week out. I'm earning really good money. Haven't you know? bought our first house, like there was so much things happening in my life where I was like, it couldn't get better. And then a doctor tells me what he tells me and I'm like, hang on a minute, that's not right. 2016, the same. Like I go there and you're treated like a superstar in the UK and you live in this little country town that they treat you like kings and and um, and I believe the same thing. I loved that feeling. Like in, you know, England crowds are enormous. You go there and they're just cheering the whole, whole game and all for you and – as a front rower, I'd stand in front of that North stand at, at home in England and they just don't shut up. It's so good. And and I miss that. I miss that feeling of just getting on there and doing all that. But then when that was over, the same feeling of Penrith come back. I'd, I'd go home miserable. Um, I'd leave training miserable. I, sometimes I'd finish sessions miserable. Like players would joke about it and go, you know, they'd call me you know, bipolar, like just having a joke. Like one time you get Westo one way and then next minute he's, he's storming off training and he's leaving. But that was me. Like there was something that I couldn't articulate in my emotion. I didn't want to share it. So I just 
take off. And um, anyway, same thing. I, it's funny. I always say this story. When we got promoted into the Super League, I went into that game obviously not aware of our current situation. To paint a picture, we win that game. We're promoted to Super League. So the equivalent to the NRL in yeah. England. I didn't know that. So we win that game and everyone's carrying on with Super League 2017 signs and carrying on like we'd won the comp. And I'm like – and I stormed to the sheds because I, I had the shits. I was like, I, you know, this is not how we're meant to behave. It's not over yet. One of the trainers come in and go, what's wrong with you? And I said, like, they're all carrying on out there like we're there. Like we're, it's not over yet. And he's like, no, we are there. We've done it. We've made it. We still had games to go, but we'd won four in a row that guaranteed a Super League. But because I was so out of it mentally, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it. Wow. And so I missed that time to celebrate that moment, which is something that, you know, I, I missed that opportunity because – and all I can say is is because my head was so muddled yeah. that I didn't even have – I was going into games not even understanding what, you know, outcome could be and that – that's something I paid a lot of money to do. I should know that. But that's just to show how messed up I was in my head. And wow. So where did it go? Where did it get to? Like let's just fast forward now to where did, where did that – like it's obviously like I would say evolution mm. is a progression, right? Yeah. That's what evolution is, it's progression. So your mental illness progressed from when you were first diagnosed and you weren't even aware that you had – depression or anxiety and you don't even know if you were misdiagnosed or or you're fully diagnosed. Yeah, yeah. You had one doctor tell you or a couple of doctors say maybe this or maybe that. Yeah. To five years later now, you can't even express the the dream the six year old kid had. You can't even acknowledge and and fully envelop that. And then from there it went Yeah, it did mate. So after that, um we, you know, end up, you know, winning the comm. We promote the Super League, you know, that that, that end up happening. Um, there's a photo of me and my two boys with the trophy and, oh, you amazing. know, and it's, you know, something I'll never forget and it's an experience I loved and I did get to cherish that moment. But, you know, the photo tells a thousand words, you know, like you see it on the surface and that's life. That's a mental health space. Yeah. It's like we can all put a mask on and I did that for a number of years and, um, and I'm glad I got that but outside of that, jersey outside of that training gear I was just a different person and um it affected started affecting my performance and my relationship with my wife obviously deteriorated to a point where I don't understand how she stayed so long you know at the time um you know I just assumed and I always used to say she's the best thing that ever happened to me you know at the time I was like never fight never argue like the boys would always say how do you get to do all this she just lets you and I'm like yeah and she wasn't letting me. She just – well, she was in a sense, but she wishes that I was around. But it was like she got confined to that feeling that I've got to let him because that's what he's meant to do, like – which isn't fair, but that's how it was. And um, same thing. She pretty much got to a point where um, I was carrying injuries at the time too. I, you know, everything wasn't really working for me um, and it was all piling at once. But um, my wife's grandfather passed away and – um, she was due to go back with the kids at one point and she had to go early obviously and um, she went back home and um, and when she left, I assumed obviously she'd come back and she was away for months with the boys and spent some time back then and just made the call one day that she's not coming back. And, and that was hard because 
um, that was the time where I had to acknowledge that I had an issue. You know, I had to acknowledge that, right, this is, this is not everyone else's fault anymore. Like, you know, and, and I still didn't want to believe it. I understood because like go and see a doctor and, and my wife at the time was telling me this and, and I owed it to her, if anything, that I needed to do this and do it properly. But again, I, my ego was kind of still in the road to, I knew what they were going to tell me. So I was like, well, it's a waste of time because I know what they're going to tell me. And they did tell me what they told me when I was 24. And uh, this time, the effects of that, my wife's not returning. Now, I, I recently signed a three-year deal to stay at the club um, to earn quite a lot of money, you know. So financially, it was going to set us up. You could argue, argue to say whether I'd see that out with the way I was injured at the time. But um, at the time, it was, you know, it was part of the plan. A very structured guy. I was like, well, we've got another three years and we'll finish and we'll move home. And so within a week, I literally just, I get that phone call from my wife at the time and I just had to pack up. Uh, my old man was visiting at the time and kind of just packed up what we could and said goodbye within a week and I resented my wife at the time so for so long for that. Um, I just didn't get the opportunity to say goodbye the way I wanted to to people I love so much in, in the UK and to a club that done so much for me too. I felt like I owed them more than what I how I left and I come home and um, to the Gold Coast and that was always the plan to come home with the kids and let them grow up here and, and um, just a battle to try and keep my relationship going with my wife and it was I'd see hope but a lot of days I was just kidding myself I, I you know and I feel like she'd made the decision you know months before she actually did I think it she was literally doing it probably for me more so to let me get through a bit longer but um so you know that that ends up in divorce um I then turned straight to drugs and alcohol um it becomes my life um I'd go out Friday, Saturday, um, then be in a dark hole from Sunday to Wednesday, start to feel good again and then repeat. I'd do that for 18 months, you know, I, um, just to a point where I just didn't even want to leave the house. You know, I did what I had to do for work um, and then I'd just come home, just want to be by myself all the time. And it got to that point where I was just, I was so, so much bitterness and resentment and blame all to, on my, you know, ex-wife and, um, and I just was – I was acting out without seeking help. I was like, oh, well, I'll do this and I'll let all these – all the drugs and alcohol help me. But I was still getting the same results and I was still mixing with the same crowd that would influence that to, you know, encourage me to do it more because that's what they were doing. Yeah. And they're still doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Birds of a feather. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it was – it was – um, yeah, so eventually, mate, it gets that bad that um, – you know, it was, it was something that I, when I was in the UK, every morning I'd think about taking my life. Every morning was something that was so clear and I wouldn't get upset about it. It was something that I was like, I don't, I was that in a dark place that I was like, okay, I don't want to be here as much as I've got all this. And I knew how it was going to happen. I, I planned it all out and it was just, each day would just prolong. It's like I'd wake up the next day and Throughout that time, I always had the thoughts, but they weren't, right, I'm going to go do it today. That, that never happened when I was in England, but it was still the first thing I thought about. I didn't feel worthy enough to be here anymore for the way I was. So I was almost punishing myself for my own behaviour, but not actually owning up or changing anything on the surface. 
And I then, when things got, you know, so bad um, here on the Gold Coast, I um, I'd been writing a letter to my boys and that's the hard, like, hardest thing I've ever done, mate. You know, yeah. like um, still to this day to think that I was so calm in writing those words and putting it, changing the letter so much to make sure that I, when I left, they had something and a reason why. Um, you know, it breaks my heart, especially, you know, very fresh after it to, um, to, to look at them laugh and smile and being happy and then be like, I'm, I may not have been there to see all this anymore, you know. So um, that was the hardest but I, I was high on drugs, I was, you know, drinking, I was out, you know, carrying on like I was and I'd had an argument with my ex-wife and that was it and I, and I just said like I, I'd sent the email, I'd sent the letter and, and that night like attempted to take my own life and um, the, the next – the next morning, obviously, um, you know, I survived and the next morning I was so hard on myself. I was so – it was a mix of emotions. We talk about emotions. I was I was so hard that I, it was almost like I couldn't achieve it. It was almost like I punished myself. As strange as that sounds, it's it's like I couldn't, couldn't even do that and I had these noises in my head, obviously, from the enemy. It'll be like almost like, see, you couldn't even do that. And it just fueled me so much, like I couldn't even achieve – something I wanted to then and it was – and I honestly believe, mate, again, I'm, I haven't come to Christ yet but I honestly believe it was the enemy seeing the goodness in me wanting me to go deeper and deeper into that scene and um, and I I literally – yeah, it was a, it was a terrible time um, and then I literally fast forward – a few months and I started slipping back into that same thing again. I'd drink again, I'd get back on the drugs and, and that's all I, I knew. Like that's I was just like, I'll just do that again to sweep it. And literally one day I was so embarrassed this, you know, I remember Boxing Day just being out with friends, neglecting like family and stuff and would rather go and do that. And um, I just looked at myself in the mirror one day and just decided to draw a line in the scene and oh, like wow. that's it. Like... Stop being a victim. And that's what I was, mate. I was a victim pointing the finger at everyone else to say, oh, it's his fault, it's her fault. It's... And I still blame my wife at the time for months, years after that happened. And again... So a process. Yeah, happens, yeah. Yeah. And as soon as I did that, as soon as I put the line in the sand and go, no, nah, that's enough, like um, things started happening. You know, it didn't plan out the way I had initially. Um but four weeks later, I meet my now wife um, and things start happening. I started going to church, you know, and, and we joke about it, but I started going at the start because I was, you know, I was there to impress her. Yeah. She, she went to church and I'm like, well, I'll go to church. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it wasn't an accident, mate. Like it wasn't – you think about my life and even what I've shared today, it's – I've always wanted love. And, I, and like I said, and I was thinking about my life as a jigsaw puzzle and it's like – how frustrated my life's been. It's almost like having that one piece left to, to finish the picture. Yeah. And my life was a, a frustration where I couldn't and I found that in, in Christ. So so I want to dig into you. I, I, want, I want to share your faith in a minute. But before we do that, um, I want to ask a couple of questions based on that. So people really do understand your journey. Um, number one, like your learnt behaviour was to sweep the emotions under the rug. So it's like you grew up, you went and became a football footballer, you went to England 
and understanding this terminology, it's an actual out of the um, scriptures. It's you became a golden calf in England. They they created a hero out of you and put you on a pedestal, and all it did was stroke your ego. But you still never dealt with the emotions. So you had a dream at six to become great. You became great, but you weren't great. You were just egotistical, and, yeah. and uh, I'm not pissing on you at all. No, but, that's true. And so. Without dealing with those emotions, without one minute going and, and growing emotionally agile and emotionally mature, you had no way of being able to process. The only thing that you could do was blame everyone else when things didn't work out your way. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So what needs to change? So, you know, look, I know you've got a faith now and, and it's the same as mine and outside of that and we – a lot of people have voices and, and, and you know, the, you've got the monkey on each shoulder and all that sort of stuff. But from your perspective, you're, you're an, an Aussie icon really because of your journey and I've witnessed your emotion today sharing about that moment where you writing your boy's letters. That mm. would have been freaking hard. So, and, and you didn't. You've survived. You've come through and you've pushed through and you've changed your life completely. But so this doesn't happen to the next kid who, who's six and has a dream of being great, whether it's a great whatever, yeah. whether it's a football player or whether it's just an, you know, a code rider or, or, or whether it's an Elon Musk or whether it's just a gardener, or, or not just a gardener, shouldn't I say a gardener, or, or whether whatever that greatness is that that kid has the dream, which we all do. Every person has a dream for I want to be something, you know, I, I, I want to belong, I want to be with what, in your view, needs to change? Just the awareness, mate. You know, education, and that's why I'm passionate about doing what I'm doing yeah. now. You know, like I, again, only talking to the Australian schoolboys the other week about it. It's I was in a room with, you know, a bunch of 14, 15, 17, 18-year-olds, you know, like so under 15 tournament in the Opens, and all these kids are at school. So they're all at school with a dream to play NRL. We've got hundreds of kids. They're not gonna. There's there's going to be a, a small minority of them that will. So I'm sitting there asking them questions of of what have you got planned for your career? Like what have you got in place for this? And that we didn't get a lot of answers, you know, because unfortunately, and I feel like the game's got a bit of like responsibility with this as far as the financial point of it. Kids are leaving high school earning a hundred grand minimum now. And it's like, yeah. how are they learning anything in life? It's only, I believe there should be something in place that you have to be of a certain age. You actually, you might you might get a contract for a hundred grand. You don't need a hundred grand at eighteen. You're still living at home with mum, most people, and dad. And um, so, it's the education, but there's also got to be something from the game to actually put in place to go because we see too many people with too much money that ends up with a lifestyle I led that ends up to that because it ends up becoming a bit of a pissing contest because it's like, well, that person's got that. And so when I earn that, I'm going to get that. And then they start comparing themselves, which they're still not revealing their true identity. They're trying to chase someone else's dream. That's not what they wanted. That's not what they wanted as a person, but they get into an environment where it's so real. It's like, well, I want what the next person wants. And as we know, mate, they're materialistic things. They last like not very long. So the way it needs to change is continual education. We can't go away from that. We need like – and that's why I've always related with people that have been there and done it. 
So for me, the other week to, to stand up there with Mossy Masoy, who an ex-NRL player, played about 180 NRL games and he was paralysed in a, in a freak accident in the UK playing over there and um, had to learn to walk again, laid in a bed for 100 days on his back, couldn't move. Oh. And he has a smile on his face telling his story the other day. He can walk on crutches now and his journey is incredible but he's standing up there and the kids are in awe of him because – it's an experience. They've been there and done it. They, they haven't gone and all, no disrespect to people who go to uni but there's so many people learn how to be able to go and tell someone what's wrong with them and this is how to get better but especially rugby league, they relate with people that have been there and done it. Yeah. So I, I call on more ex-players to, to be out there, to sharing like we do, to go, hang on, we can't have you go down this path. We don't want you to. So I feel comfortable sharing my story and Mossy the same very recently because he knows and I know that it's going to help someone. And again, it's not going to solve everything. We're still going to have our issues. And I said that to the kids. It's You're going to be disappointed. It's inevitable. It's always going to happen. But what are you going to have? And I shouldn't say, and I didn't say this, but I don't like, we've always been created to say, you've got something to fall back on. You need something to fall back on. And I don't believe that. No. Because you're, now, you're putting a mentality in a young kid from the get-go, you're not going to make it. Yeah. You, you're going to actually fail at this. So what have you got to fall back on? Yeah. Instead of like, what can we educate you? What can you add to your life? Yeah. That if one door closes, another opens because you've got more tools to your trade yeah. to go to that next opportunity. Not, oh, you need a backup plan. Yeah. You know, I've never liked that yeah. and it's something that you do learn and, and teachers would say that to me. Yeah. What's your backup plan? You're yeah. not going to make it. Yeah, go, get a, go and get a trade. At least you've got a backup plan. Yeah. You know. And I, I just don't like that mentality but… You, you know what else it does? Like I'll, I'll let you keep going but you know what else it does? It tells you that that trade or that backup plan is nowhere near as good as the first plan. Mm. So when you become that second plan because the first plan doesn't work out, you already feel like a secondary person. You're not yeah. good enough, which yeah. is a load of shit, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's not true. No. You know, it's it's called a pivot rather than a backup plan. Yeah. And just learn some more skills and, yeah. yeah. So, that, yeah, that's that's the biggest one, mate. I think wow. – um, and again, I'll touch on my purple shirt stuff soon, but um, I think the biggest thing is what I never had from a kid and, again, what drives what I'm trying to do with in this space is – I never had any education about mental health and awareness and emotions and all that. Yes, I might have got started getting it a bit when I was playing first grade, but like through when I was around playing Harold Matthews and SG Ball and through reserve grade and stuff, it was never there. It was never – and if it was, it was very small. It wasn't – and again, we understand that mental health space bigger and, you know, it's growing and growing and it's getting more people aware of it and stuff and, and getting to a point where they can just talk about it like every day and that's where we want to get. But we need to instill that from a young age. Yeah, you know, it's, it's still we, we, we want to get there, not as just an awareness, it's a way of life. Like I don't like the terminology uh, he committed su- or she or they, they committed suicide. Mm. They died of mental illness. Yeah. And until we can recognise that as an actual illness, mm. that's where the world's got to grow. And this is my perspective. I'm very yeah. passionate about it. And so I, I think until – like it's still every 40 seconds, every 40 seconds. So we've been sitting here now speaking for an hour or so. And so if you can count how many times 40 seconds went past, mm. someone took their life in this world yeah. through – died of mental illness. Yeah. And so until we can get to that point where we recognise that's one of the pandemics, of real pandemics, not, not other – we won't go down that political road yeah. right now. <laughs> Not other shit that yeah. we're here. Yeah. I'm going to say it. Um, 
but until we can recognize that, then we need to be building stuff into mm. everything. Yeah, you know, everything is schools and and you know, we want to focus on what skill you've got rather than how you're gonna handle success. Mm. So no one ever taught you how to handle success. Mm. No one ever taught you how ego is good because it's a benchmark. Mm. Ego is good because it's going to tell you you're you're not being humble right now. It's okay to have the ego, just like doubt. People think doubt's wrong. Mm. And I grew up with people saying to me because I grew up in a in a Christian family in a in a church based community, all doubt is from the devil. And I think that's bullshit. Mm. I think doubt is a good thing because it's telling me that I'm pushing against something that I've never been in before. You know, mm. so. So those things we've got to really start doing. So that, anyway, I jumped on a bandwagon. There you go. You tickle. You tickle the itch. So yeah. Well, mate. Oh, look. I'm honoured that you actually shared that story with us about that, and I can see that. I, I want to ask you a couple more questions really quickly. Um, but the first one is just just give us like a, a quick one about your faith. Mm. And, and then we're going to get into your mission, and, yep. and that's what because I, I think they're both connected. Mm. Um, but let's let's go there. What, what what is this thing about your faith? So, like I said, I I first went to church. Like I, I grew up like believing in God. Like as a kid, I like and I always used to say, it, my mum and dad divorced when I was fourteen, and the year before I left home, and and I used to pray to God that they'd split up because I'd see them fight, argue, I hated it. Like and. And, you know, as a little kid, I, all I wanted was them to, to break up. And then when it happened, it tore me heart out. So careful what you pray for. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, but, you know, so it was always there that, you know, some people come to Christ and, you know, they mightn't have had anything before. And that's okay as well. Um, but, you know, we're not judged on what's happened beforehand. But always had this thing that, you know, God was real. God was out there and... Um, so when I started coming to church, I didn't know what to expect. And when I first walked into Elevation at Tweed, I I remember walking down and the and the worship music was playing. And the first recollection of walking in church was I felt like I was walking out to a, the field like for the first time oh, with wow. the crowd cheering, like yeah, and right. the bands playing, and literally you're walking down a ramp pretty much to where I sat. And um, I was like, wow, this is this is something special here. And and then, you know, people are falling on the ground and, and my wife's like, oh, no, this is not meant to happen your first time. <laughs> um, but anyway, and again, it initially started because I was. But at the same time, there was something in my heart that shifted the moment I walked in yeah. to not, like, turn me away, to not have my back to go, oh, what's all this, you know, about? I'll just, I'll just do a little explainer for everyone. Um, so the church Dane's talking about is an evangelical Pentecostal church. Um, and there, you know, there's all sorts of different denominations and stuff, and they're all God based and faith based and stuff like that. So I just want to explain that so people would understand the difference of what you're saying. You're going walking into some churches don't don't have that, mm. and everyone needs their own way of expression. So yeah, keep going, man. Yeah, and so for me, music's always <coughs> been like powerful for me. You know, like um, and a really deep thinker, and you know, like listening to music with you know good lyrics and meaningful stuff. You know, and so I was pretty impressed with that. Like I, I, it got me from the get-go and um, and then weeks of going to church, um, you know, every Sunday I'd go with uh, Lydia and um, after getting introduced to Locke, uh, the pastor at the church and meeting people, I just, what Locke did for me um, and especially Lydia as well, no one pressured me into doing anything. They could see, they wanted me to, to you know, come to Christ, they, they could see the, the goodness in me. 
um, and the opportunity that was there for me, but no one ever forced it. No one ever like said, you should do this. I'd be good if you did this. It was the best thing they did because it provided me opportunity to seek it myself. And after a while of going there, I just, you know, had a few encounters that I was like, this is, this is not me thinking this. This is literally, I'm getting spoken to here from God. And um, in that time, I made a decision to surrender my life. Um, Could you just explain when you say spoken to by God, mm. can you explain, <clears throat> was that a feeling? Was that a voice? Was it, what was that, what was that thing that made you kept coming back or was it, you know, just so people can understand? Mm. It was a voice for me. Okay. Yeah. And it was clear as day, yeah. you know, and that's, I can still now see myself sitting in the exact chair I was sitting in from the moment that first happened and Locke was preaching and he was talking about youth. He was talking about youth and how to change youth and how we need people to, and I just remember God's words were, that's your job. Yeah, right. You know, and here I am at the time wasn't doing what I'm doing now and I am doing what he wants me to do. And I shouldn't say what he wants me to do. God needs me to do what I'm doing now and I think that's important to, to say because God's got plans for us. He doesn't want you to do it because he thinks it would be a good idea. He needs you to do it because it's part of his plan. Yeah. So that for me was real and that was the first moment. I'm like, hang on a minute. Like, and so it wasn't in that moment but there was a time I was with Locke and uh, just hit me and he prayed for me and just in that moment I made a decision to surrender my life and it was um, – yeah, it was the best thing I've ever done, mate. And I can honestly say that. Oh, I've said this to many people and they say, yeah, but you've played NRL and you've mm. done this and done that. And yeah. I said, yeah, but that lasted for 10 years. Yeah. You know, what I've got now in Christ is eternity. Yeah. Like, and people don't understand it because it's not tangible. It's not in front of them. And um, there, it's been a journey, mate. Like it, it didn't just happen overnight and as soon as I made that decision, like as you know, mate, you, you made that decision and the devil doesn't want that happening. He, yeah, the enemy I mean, looks at that and goes, hang on a minute, we've just lost one and that, he'll do everything in his power to try and get you back. And that we were like as a, in a relationship with, you know, my wife and my wife's got a blended family. Um, my wife's got a, an eight-year-old and, and my two boys um, blending the family. There's things happening in our lives that, you know, you just know that it's an attack. And um, even me personally, mate, look, it took me a, a long time to heal still from my past and getting, you know, help and, and seeking that out. But just through time, being at the church, surrounding myself with good people, like, and seeing the goodness in that, I'm just like, I want more. Yeah. And, and it just become part of my life. It wasn't something that I needed, like, that I felt like, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. It just become part of my daily life. Like, I... I get up, I read the Bible every every morning, you know, I, I worship God. Like it's it's not a – it's part of my routine and it's something that I love and I can turn to, mate, like now. Like yeah. um, again, it was hard even at the start. It's like just pray to God about it. And I'm like – and initially I was like, oh, yeah, like, that's not going to – but now I see, mate. Like now I know that um, everything happens for a reason and my life has turned out that way. And that's why I've always said I don't regret anything in my life. Because everything's taught me a lesson. Yeah. God, I believe, because no accident. I look back and I'm like, oh, that person was in my life for that reason, yeah. this reason. And and now I believe I'm living life the way God wants me to. And yeah. um, so, so, so you had to make a decision though way before then to draw a line in the sand about being a victim. Mm. You had to you had to stop being a victim. So, people, you've always believed in God and 
so does so many other people that don't follow him. Or, but you had to draw a line in the sand to get rid of the start the journey of getting rid of the mental jungle of I can't be a victim anymore. And from there, your journey towards your belief now is that's where it started, isn't mm, it? Yeah. It started there where you went, I can't be a victim. There's something bigger than this. Yeah. Um, so based on that, and I didn't want to cut your face story short, and I don't, I'm really cautious of your time today, and I really appreciate it, but I want to get to your mission because the two are blended. Yeah. Um, you're, so I'll, I'll just give you from my perspective, I don't believe you could have walked in your vision, <laughs> your mission, sorry, until you had actually surrendered your victimhood and then found your faith. So tell everyone about your mission, what you're doing now and what you feel that that's what you should be here for. Yeah. So my mission's obviously it's pretty simple. It's, you know, to give the youth, our, not just in rugby league but in our community, the opportunity to, you know, be aware of mental health, to, to be educated on it, but also give them a, um, a level of comfortability to be able to open up, share, have someone to turn to. Like, and um, what I'm doing in my work, so I work in um, wellbeing, obviously, with the Queensland Rugby League, but and I look after community rugby league, but like I touched on earlier, that awareness is not actually um, mandatory until a pathway to the NRL. So it's a 15, 16-year-old, that's when they start getting it from the NRL. Now, the schools, you know, their duty care is to do so much, but it's not something that's forced. It's not something that's introduced as, as much. So what I want to do and what I want to change, and it's never been done before, is implement wellbeing support in the community level. So, you know, we take advantage of kids and we're okay to see a six-year-old like myself to go from being six, having a dream, making the NRL money because that's what the players do. They create the, the revenue for the game. So if it's okay for that to happen, why isn't it not okay then to look after that six-year-old? Yeah. Why isn't it okay to put the time into these kids? So when we get to 16, you or I could be 16, Nathan, go, right, Dane, you've made it, but Nathan, sorry, this is not for you. I start getting education on my mental health and being vulnerable and, and being able to open up. But what about you? Why do you miss out now? Because, you know, you didn't make it. You're, you're not as skilled or you're not as fortunate in that moment. And then you turn away from the game and don't play again. What happens to your life? There's no record on that. There's no, there's no like follow-up to go, oh, Nathan, I know you didn't make under-16s Harold Matthews, but how are you going? You're done, mate. It's like, good luck. Hope, you know, and that's what I want to take out. I'm like, if you instill this resilience and awareness from a six-year-old and make it honest and open because they need to hear it too. We can't continue a life where it's like, oh, don't say that to a little kid because we don't want to say that. Why not? Like, yeah. you know, like why is it still 2022? We're still trying to protect what we think we're doing is trying to protect kids yeah. from not hearing it. Like all we're doing is creating for them later in their life to end up like I was. Yeah. So I'm like, let's make it real. Let's get it out there. Let's let's show them. Obviously, we've got to tailor it to the age, but there's nothing wrong with having a positive mental health and that's how we need to shape it. It's not pulling all these sad stories that, you know, happen later in life to a six-year-old. Like I wouldn't go, my, my kids don't know my story. Yeah. You know what I mean? So... You know, and my eldest has started high school and it's going to come. Like I'm going to make that decision to have her sit him down and tell him. Um, but at the same time is my mission is to instill that positive mental health from a young age yeah. because 
then when they're in the situation where, you know, hypothetically, me and you were in as a 15, 16-year-old, when you miss out, you're still in a, you've got a positive mental health that gives you the ability then then go, okay, cool. I'm going to the next, ne- it, yeah. yeah, next opportunity. Yeah. Or you get to the, the, um, the Dane in 2017 and you don't make that decision. Yeah. Because you know how to yeah. han- handle your yeah. an- anxious moments and your, yeah. and you, like you can, yeah, articulate your emotions, yeah. you can share it and tell someone how bad things are yeah. and, and you don't get that far down because you've already seek the help. Yeah, so you're okay with seeking it. Well, mate, what a mission that is! Like that's an absolutely incredible mission. We um, we all, one of my favourite statements also one of my favourite quotes is "Dream big, start mm. small, and trust the process." It sounds like you're doing that because that's a really big mission. Um, so that's what the purple shirts are mm. in in all if uh, in all QRL clubs, Dana's instigated a an initiative called the Purple Shirt, which is a, a wellness. Um, person who's been schooled in in how to uh, articulate uh, mental wellness to anyone, mm. and so that's been that that program's coming out next year, mm. and uh, so every QRL club will have a purple shirt, or you've got a bunch of volunteers now who are getting trained, ready to go, which is a phenomenal initiative, Dane. Mm. Like um, I'm so stoked to be a part of your journey with that too. Mm. That we've got some bigger plans to try and get that out further. Yeah, for sure. And I'm um, I'm really stoked. So, mate, a f- phenomenal uh, initiative, the purple shirt thing. Um, and I obviously scratched an itch with you because you were just as passionate about it as I was. <laughs> so that's cool. Um, just a couple of quick things to finish off. You know, like, um, have you got anything else that you want to say? If it, just say. If they were all listening to you right now, if everyone who could make a decision to shift the bias right now, what would you say? Just speak. speak. Um, I got asked the same question the other week with all those schoolboys kids and I left with that. I said, if I can give you one bit of advice, it's like talk. Like I know it sounds simple but it's like it's – we know ourselves. When we share what's going on in our our lives and we share it with someone, eventually – for some of us, we it takes a while, and and I said, keep being persistent. If you can see something in someone as well, I think that's important. When you recognise someone's off, being okay to go and ask them, are you okay? Sometimes it can be the most powerful thing you can ask, um, because it's not just us ourselves. You know, we got to understand that I wore a mask for a long time, and no one knew. You know, no one asked me, am I okay? Because nothing seemed wrong on the surface. So I always say to the kids, ask them. If you see your kid at school or if you see kids getting bullied at school or you see things going on, be that guy to go and stop that. Stand and say you won't stand for that as well. Like creating a, a better community in general is what we should be all doing. You know, like being okay to stand up for something is a strong value, you know. Like um, so get vulnerable, get used to being vulnerable and – and get others to – people will follow. I think there's so much power in vulnerability. And as soon as you understand that and share, like the weight gets lifted off the shoulders. So It's amazing, mate. So uh, I would say that's what you would say to your six-year-old self. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and would you also say the same things to your sons right now? Yes, and I do, mate. You know, like I said, I haven't shared in the detail of my story um, – and, you know, it's been a bit of a one, you know, I'm talking with God about it at the moment is like when's the right time um, and it's not now but it will be and that's why I'm forever like my youngest, Blaze, he's, he's like me, you know, I can see it in him and my wife says the same. It's like 
he's you and that's he's 10 in a couple of weeks but he's the six-year-old you know like things are affecting him but we don't know what's affecting him because he won't speak up so it's been persistent and again it'll happen like and I, I we see small progress with him you know we we see it you know slowly weeks go on well like, i've seen a shift and it's not the full shift but as long as you know it's shifting as long as there's shoulder, progress there yeah, as long as yeah. the shoulders are pointing the right way yeah. yeah i heard that statement recently it was a really cool one it doesn't matter as long as your shoulders are pointing the right way mm. you're on the journey that's yeah. cool mate um thank you so much for being here and being so vulnerable with us today um so how can i help um good question um Mate, at the end of the day, I, I want to take this further. Like, um, you know, I don't – my mission obviously is, you know, with this space, but it's also with people. Um, I want to continually, you know – again, I look up to you as a, a mentor, mate, for me, and um, I want to continually uh, pursue, you know, a career in coaching other people as well because, yes, I have a, a dream for the youth to get to being an adult but there's also people my age there's elderly there's people that still struggle in this space That's right. um and it's down to you know just their life that their life's all over the shop they can't even it's not all mental health issues but i believe that there's lessons that i've learned in my time and my experience that can help other people and so that's something that um i'm looking forward to to doing mate and again with your your experience and help and guidance with that mate um that's you know, what I'm, I'm chasing to, to help share that on a, on a bigger scale. So if someone was uh, wanting to reach out to you right now um, and chat to you more or pull you in as a coach or or get you to come and speak to their kids at school and stuff like that, how, how do they reach you right now, Dane? Um, via email is probably the, the easiest, mate. Um, uh, we'll whack that in the show notes. So yeah. People um, and, yeah, yeah, reach out. Don't be, you know, nothing too big or small um, I can handle. I'm always willing to help and um, I just, you know, some people always think of that. It's like investing in your future. It's like they're always like, oh, well, that, that sounds expensive or that. But when you think of it in a way that if you've spent that money, whatever it is, to invest in yourself to get you – if you made that decision today, tomorrow, after listening to this and you reach out to me or you know, someone reached out to you, Nath, or whoever, that they're not prolonging where they want to be. Yeah. They've made a decision to say, well, actually, I don't like where I am. I don't want to part with the money. But at the same time, yeah. how better that is if they get through it, they look back and go, that was nothing because yeah. I feel so much better where I'm at because, mate, majority of the community are miserable because they're not happy in their circumstance. Yeah, and it's not money that is, is the answer. You you can always get more money. You just can't get more time. Yeah. And so, you know, get rid of the get rid of the time issue mm. and um, point your shoulders in the right direction, shall we say today. Yeah. That's awesome, mate. Um, so just to finish off, let's do the quick three. This will actually lighten things up a little bit. So you don't know about this, do yeah, you? No. Okay. <laughs> I was going to put you on the spot. But before I do, I just want to share something quirky about Dane. Um, I went to his wedding. I was so privileged to go to his wedding. And um, so I tried to paint a picture at the beginning of the episode what Dane looks like a little bit. And I, I didn't know how this was all going to go down. I'm standing there with a few friends and we're watching And in comes this guy who did The Rock. <laughs> he actually did The Rock, the eyebrow and everything. He looks like The Rock. He's as big as The Rock. He's as muscly as The Rock. And he did The Rock. He danced like The Rock. He did everything. So that's the quirky thing I know about. So if you ever see a big 
powerful ball guy down near the Nook Coffee place, <laughs> getting a coffee, race up to him and say, hey, can I smell what the rock's cooking? Or just give Dane a shake, handshake. He'll love that. Um, so the quick three years. Uh, number one, who's your hero? Uh, good question. It's not a quick one. Um, as a kid, that was the rock. Um, you know, and being honest, I admired him. I looked up to him and that's why people joke about it now. It's like you feel like you've turned into him, um, so to speak. But um, I'm not joking. He, he has turned into him. <laughs> no. Um, oh, that's a hard one, mate. I can't answer it. But, like, as a, as a joke, it was The Rock. But there's so much things to The Rock. I don't know we joke about it, but there's so much of that man I admire. Um, his work ethic, the, the willingness to, you know, help other people. He's generous, like – you know, not just his exterior, but there's so much of that man that I do admire, like all jokes aside, that I look and I go, that, that's a quality man. Like he's, he's done so much for so many people and been humble along the way. But, um, but as far as, you know, an actual hero, mate, I, yeah, I don't have an answer to it. Um, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of um, mentors in my life, a lot of people I look up to um, as such, but Actual word hero, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I have one, mate. That's good. Maybe yeah. it's you. <laughs> That's good because of what you've conquered. Maybe mm. it should be you. That's good. All right. So, what is the worst thing that anyone has ever said to you? Or someone has ever said to you? Probably not right for you. Um, yeah, do it. No, nah. <laughs> everything's right for you. No, I don't know, mate. Did you hit me with some hard ones here? Um, mate, I don't know. Um, to have him on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, nothing like, and again, those that know me, like nothing really phases me too much. Like I've got pretty thick skin. So I'm, I've never let either what someone said to me or people's opinions affect me. Like a, my wife always says, I wish I had the ability you have to not let yeah, get but down. someone has said something. Yeah, definitely. But I, I don't know. I think it's – whether it affected you or not. Yeah, potentially, mate. Nothing that comes to mind. Oh, cool, um, cool. Yeah, but um, no. oh, people say what they like all the time. Cool. But yeah, not no, really, mate. No wrong answers. All right, no. well, what's the best thing that someone ever said to you? Um, I love you. Ah, cool. Yeah. Well, there you go. You know, I just want to drop this quote just at the end of this session. It's been really a heavy session talking about mental health. And, mate, um, if you've got one more thing to say, what would that be? Um, just enjoy what you do. I think that's important too. Like, you know, a lot of people talk about being people being miserable. It's like find what that purpose is. You know, people search a lifetime for it, but, you know, whether it's finding Christ and that being unlocked in your life, but um, I might, you know, I, I always say to people, like people understand, don't understand, they're like, oh, you've got this now and your life's this and like that. And, and, you know, it's all because of God, like and what he's done in our lives. But people like that, but they're not willing to actually go and seek it for themselves. Yeah. So they understand the answers, but they just don't want to do it. But um, just be happy with what you do. Find what makes you happy and do it. That's don't awesome. let it be defined on your earnings or, or that. You know, be happy. Love that, mate. I just want to finish with this quote. Um, it's okay to struggle to have mental illness. It's just not okay to struggle alone. And so if you are struggling, even to speak up to someone – there's, there's, we've got Lifeline and Beyond Blue here in Australia, um, but I, I would say find someone that you can be vulnerable with, and um, and don't go struggling alone with it. So we're gonna we're gonna finish the podcast. Thanks so much, mate. Love you. It's been an awesome time together. Yeah, I love you too, mate. Thanks for having me. All right. <laughs>